which we have four in the English text, one in the Hebrew. Remember the chapter breaks are supplied for study purposes. They're not inspired. We find ourselves in Malachi chapter 4, and Lord willing, we'll, we'll finish Malachi this morning. As I've mentioned numerous times in our study, it's been a bit of a rocky ride. There are parts of Malachi that you read and you say, Amen. Other parts that you read and say, Ouch, that hurts. But all of God's word is given to us for our instruction and our reproof and our correction in this pathway of righteousness. Malachi chapter 4 is one of those difficult passages. The Lord willing, God deals with our heart in a special way this morning as we're gathered together, sitting under the prophet Malachi's ancient ministry. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Behold, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. The day which is coming shall burn them out, says the Lord of hosts, and will not leave neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing his wings. Shall go out and grow fat like stall fed calves. But you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. With statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day. Of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. This is God's word. Father, we pray that God the Spirit, that the great comforter, the paraclete, the come alongsider, would be at work in our midst. We come as children. Prayer asking, we come as children in prayer needing. We want to hear from you, the living Lord. So, Father, take these ancient words and make them live. Feed us with this bread. Satisfy us, challenge us, convict us, comfort us. Father, we do pray that your word would do its special work. We're mindful as we gather together as the Church family is a church body of our needs. Father, we're, we're thankful for our sister Shirley and the chance to see her. Father, we're thankful for mom and Paula's mom that she's making progress. And we're thankful the situation yesterday wasn't more serious than it was. It was serious, Lord, but Father, you've, you've rescued her and you're healing her. We believe that. We pray for our sister Ruthie. You might minister to her, and Father, we might be able as a church family to love her and care for her. Father, in the midst of daily life, we look up, we look to you, we want to see that, Father God, you resolve all things, that you bring all things to a perfect consummation. Mindful, Lord God, that one day we'll stand before you and give an account. Prepare us, Lord God, in part on this day for that day. Father, I pray that you would strengthen the hands of your people. I well know that 
if it matters. They wonder, Lord God, where the God of justice is. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would do its special work in our hearts and souls. Prepare us and equip us for the days ahead. Challenge us, Lord God. Help us to see you and to journey with joy, we ask in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's July 8, 1741, in a place called Enfield, Connecticut, which is around 85 miles from us here in Westerlow. And Jonathan Edwards preached one of the most powerful messages ever delivered on American soil. The church was small that he preached in, but the impact was mighty. His preaching was powerful and persuasive. The sermon, if you don't know, was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was a vivid description of divine wrath. I'll give you just a few excerpts from that. I've read it in my teen years, and it has not lost its punch. This is part of what Jonathan said, that the natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit. They are already sentenced to it, and God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is, as long as they pray towards them, the devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and swallow them up. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There's, there's nothing between you and hell but the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the estranging, I think, in that constraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. This simple text was. In due time, their foot will slip. So he built through imagery this picture of an angry God, of a wrathful God. And certainly, brothers and sisters, in our post-Christian, on certain levels, anti-Christian times, it's hard to imagine a God who gets angry at sinners, or a God who is described in his word, in his revelation, his self-revelation to us, as a God of wrath. That is a concept generally loathed by fallen people who are convinced that they can rehab and repair themselves. I find it interesting, however, that if you talk with people, and that's an interesting conversation this past week, they will admit that there is this sense in which one day they will give an account, that they will answer, that they will stand Maybe in the Greek, Christon Theron, before the face of God. The prevailing idea is that if I've done more good than bad, God will say, all right, come on. If I've been okay or tried really hard or been sincere, God will say, it's okay. Which makes me wonder what the cross means, what the gift of the Lamb of God means. All I have to do is try really hard to be good. But most folks believe in some kind of adjudication, some sorting out process. The means of that, they're foggy on. The method of that, the character of God, they're foggy on. But they do agree that there 
this revelation from God from a disconcerting book. Malachi, as I mentioned throughout our study, has this kind of running argument to it where people, uh, God is speaking, the people of God are denying, complaining, whining, and then God answers. God comes down strong and lays out his evidence. One of the things that they have asked is, where's the God of justice? It's like God's winking. God doesn't care. You can be evil, you can be bad, you can break the ten words, the death of the law of God, the law of Moses, and God doesn't really care. He's not keeping track. Last week, one of the things that we said in that sermon was God is keeping track. There is nothing that is hidden before the eyes of God. We can't see one another's heart, mind, motive, but God sees it all. So the question was, where is the God of justice? Does evil arouse him? Was it on his radar? Will he ever intervene on behalf of the righteous? Essentially, in Malachi 4, God answers that question. Oh, yes. He's going to intervene. There will be a day of reckoning. And what the prophet Malachi does is he compresses the calendar of God and he lifts God's people down the corridor of time. And he shows them and us both the terror and the triumph of that day. The day of the Lord when evil is routed and good is victorious. God will not formally, he will not biblically speak for some 400 years. The line is about to go dead. It would be silent until John the Baptist, the herald of the Lamb, shows up in terms of the agenda of God. So this is, a, this is a message that is given to God's people, many of them living in deficit. There's a love deficit, an honor deficit, a leadership deficit, a covenant deficit. deficit. There's, a, there's a giving deficit. There's a trust deficit in terms of how great and good God is. For some of God's people... There are elements of anger, discontentment, legalism, idolatry, disillusionment. Some have grown cold on God. They have grown bored with God. So imagine if we were together and someone was experiencing a health situation, a heart situation, and the heart was not functioning properly, and I know that it's happened in here in our past. But imagine if someone literally goes for that little red bag with the paddles, and it's charged, and then the word clear is told, and then we all stand clear, and then the person is shocked, and then the heart begins to function properly. There's a sense in which that's what Malachi does for us. If we have a heart issue, a rhythm issue, if there's a malfunction of the heart, God loves us so much, and he cares for us so deeply, that he will not allow us to stay in that condition. With a fully functioning spiritual heart. And so God, as He does with His people, confronts us for His glory and our good. And His revelation and His truth is designed to change us. It always propels us towards a verdict. God doesn't ever just speak, and it doesn't matter what you do with it. God always speaks for a verdict. Come to a decision. Here, God's word, there's always a fork in the road. In God's word, it says, I set before you death and life. Choose life. 
his way. His way is the highway. Judah has wondered aloud about God's determination to balance the books. Malachi chapter 4 is not answering that question. It is God balancing the books. Just three signposts left over the text this morning, just three signposts. First of all, I wrote this over verse 1. Bad news for the wicked. Bad news for the wicked. There are a number of descriptions offered to us in verse 1, and they round out our understanding of this future day of adjudication or judgment. Every sin ever committed will one day be addressed. Every infraction against his holiness will be addressed. And so for verse 1, we would say it this way, the day of the Lord is inevitable. For behold, the day is coming. It is inevitable. It will definitely come. It is unavoidable. It is certain. It is inescapable. God's not going to change his mind. We've already learned in the book of Malachi that he's the same, that he's unchanging, that he's immutable, which is a really good thing for us who are clinging to him for mercy and grace. But for those who reject him, for those who are in open rebellion against him, it's a very, very serious thing because he doesn't change. The day of the Lord is inevitable. God is going to directly intervene in the affairs of men. There are many in our culture today who hope that, that this is all bluster, that this is hyperbole, that this is some type of metaphor, that you can read it out of the text. Maybe they've adopted the, st- the stance that one of our early country's founders did, Thomas Jefferson. If you don't like a part of the book, get a knife, get some scissors, and cut it out which is what Thomas Jefferson did. He created his Jeffersonian Bible. Whenever God's word spoke about justice or wrath, the surety of that, he just cut it out. I don't, I don't like it. The fact is, they no longer have the Bible. That's why we're instructed to behold the goodness and the severity of God. We worship and serve a God who is, on one hand, gracious and merciful and loving and compassionate and kind and gentle. And also God who is angry over sin and open rebellion, the cosmic rebellion against him. One day we will all, according to God's word, stand before the face of God. It's an amazing thought. We're here this morning, moving towards the 4th of July, so thankful for God's grace that he shown us as a nation, but realizing that ultimately, there is a far more important citizenship. It is a heavenly citizenship. One day we'll stand before God. And so this is bad news for those who have rebelled against him because the day is coming. The day of judgment is coming. Secondly, the day of the Lord is going to be, according to the text, not according to me, or an evil uh, writer, according to the text, the day of the Lord is destructive. It says that it will be burning like an oven. Fire is ferocious. It is a frightening spectacle. It is something that God uses often throughout His Word to describe His anger towards those that refuse Him. Romans 1, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them up. There is a judicial element to God. And we dare not miss it or pretend it away because, well, the culture doesn't like to hear it. Fire is used throughout Scripture as a description of judgment. I'll give you just a sampling of that. 
this is a repeated theme. Genesis 19.24, God rained the brimstone and fire on Zion and Gomorrah. Psalm 2.12, kiss the sun left to be angry, and he perished away when his wrath is kindled but a little. Psalm 89, verse 46, how long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? With your, will, will your wrath burn like fire? Isaiah 30, 27, behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and his burden is heavy. Jeremiah 4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. The Lord said, let my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it. Jeremiah 21, 12, deliver him with plunder out the land of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like fire. And finally, in Amos chapter 1, Two, I will send fire into the house of Hazel, in verse 7, upon the wall of Gaza, in Tanah, chapter 1, fire upon the wall of Tyre, and Tenan, in 14, and Robin, in 2, 2, and Judah, in 2, 5. You get the picture. In times and seasons, with this good, gracious, loving, caring, compassionate God, is rightly angry. God describes his anger this way. God reveals his anger this way. There is coming judgment. And it is inescapable. We are, in fact, on a collision course with this meeting with God. Who is this God? Well, he describes himself in the text this way. We don't describe God according to culture or what we want him to be. This is who is described. Thousands of babies per day in America being murdered. Justice must fall. With its law being scorned, justice must fall. The text goes on in verse 1 to say the day of the Lord is particular, and all of the proud, it will be directed towards all of the proud, those who act wickedly, those who join in evil, those who call good, bad, and those who call bad good, all will be judged. Evil, like redemption, has a positional and practical element to it. The autonomous self will be judged. Those who think that the world revolves around them, those who are more interested in what the culture says about them than what their maker and creator and God says about them, God's word says they're going to be judged. Frank Sinatra, who so famously sang, I did it my way, is doing it God's way. That's the future. That's what God's word tells us. The pride that caused Satan to fall is the religion of all unbelievers. I don't need God. I don't want God. I will not have him rule over me. Fourthly and finally from verse 1, the day of the Lord is total. This, this burning, this judgment, it says, will leave neither root nor branch. It will be complete. Don't think it's utter annihilation, but rather totally comprehensive. There will be no pockets of resistance, no holdout states or nations or provinces or people, no, no place untouched by God's program. It's total. So in reading Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1, you can't help but put it together and say, this is bad news for the wicked. For those who refuse God or scorn God or denigrate God or profane the name of the Lord and his character. This is bad news. If 
David asked the question, God, don't you care about justice? God says, oh, yeah, I care about justice. And it is coming. It's not a matter of if, merely a matter of when. This is us on a collision course with a good and great God. It basically, God is going to give to rebels what they say they want, which is no God. No light, no grace. You want that? Well, it's a place prepared for you forever and ever. It's called hell. You don't want me in your life. You just want you. You just want to rule and reign and be autonomous. Sit by yourself in darkness forever and ever. You don't want me? Give you what you want. Lewis makes the point, he says, you know, for the non-believer, Heaven, which is all about Jesus and his glory and the gospel, would be hell-like to an unconverted natural person. Because it's not about you. It's all about him. The issue for many of us in terms of God's judgment is his timing. Many of us wonder about the delay. Well, when is this day of the Lord? Frustrated by the kind of ridiculous things that we see, Yet in reality, God's mercy is so great. The people who will be saved and rescued, the people who will populate the ark of the gospel today, are thankful that God has restrained his hand of judgment and justice. So that's bad news for those that are evil. Verses 2 and 3, there's a corner that's turned in Malachi chapter 4, and there's good news for the godly. Good news for those that fear the Lord. Now keep in mind that this is a worthiness that is not innate. It, it doesn't come to us through the merit of our lives. It is supplied externally. We are the recipients, we learn, of unmerited favor. We have been ransomed and rescued by Jesus Christ because of his cross work. That's why we sing as we do. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Talked with an individual this past week. What do you think is going to happen one day when you stand before God? Well, I hope I've done enough. I hope I've been good enough, kind enough. My response was, I know I haven't. I'm going to trust in another's finished work for me. The wonder of God's grace. That's those who are the faithful remnant. But verse 2 says, But to you who fear my name, grace hath brought my heart to fear, grace my fears relieve. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. This good news for those that follow God. In this coming day of judgment where we stand before God one on one before his face, we'll be claiming rather his finished work. The perfect, sinless Lamb of God who takes my place and atones for my sin. This is a transaction that is described throughout God's work. This is the scarlet cord that runs throughout the entire length and breadth of the Bible. The first mention of the gospel is found in Genesis 3, when man falls into sin and destruction ensues, and there's a promise of one that will crush the head of the serpent through the work of Jesus Christ who recognize that fulfillment. 
Malachi uses in verse 2 another heat metaphor, but it's a different kind of heat metaphor. It's not angry burning. It's not a fiery indignation. It's the fire of righteousness. Now, be honest, how many of you enjoyed yesterday the warm sunniness of yesterday? Put up your hands, please. See what I'm talking about? We enjoyed the sun, S-U-N, yesterday. Here's an analogy that he will warm us in a glorious way, in a comforting way, in a joy-filled way. He rises and lights our day, lights our attitudes. Son of righteousness. The oven that burns the wicked for the faithful becomes the son of righteousness, which warms and delights us. Gabriel McGee says this, the Old Testament closes here in Malachi with God directing man to look towards the heavens, and it is well that man looks up. This is a promise of sunrise. So one day as we look ahead to future adjudication, we have the joy of saying, I've read your word, and your word says that on that day when you separate the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares, that one day I'll hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant, and now you the joy of the Lord. And I won't be because I was trying really hard and I was a good person and I baked cookies for the soccer team. That will be ours because we're clinging to Christ's work for us as the only means of escape. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the way, the truth, and the life. Here is the merit, the unmerited favor that we enjoy in verse 2. There's also the pleasure of being made whole. There's the pleasure of a cure. I don't want to ask you to put up your hands if you have a physical issue here today, because I think probably almost all of us could say, oh yeah, you want to hear about it? Some stuff going on, we know it. We know it. At the ripe old age of 53, now I'm down on the ground playing with my grandson or my new granddaughter, who was born this past week. Susie Ray Kosorek. I'm thinking about other projects I can do when I'm down there. God's Word says here, however, that when this day comes, there will be this glorious healing. He'll bring healing with his wings. No, God doesn't have wings. This is a metaphor. But you get the profound sense that Johnny Erickson Tata can look forward to healing can look forward to once again moving and running and dancing and skipping, and we long for that day. Romans talks about groaning, waiting for that day. And that's a language we all understand. One of the great joys for us as those that fear the Lord is that one day He takes us back to the garden. He brings us to consummation and to fulfillment. It's a real joy. The pleasure of being made whole, really whole. Could we take it a step further? How about the pleasure of being finally done with sin and rebellion and rejection? How about to be fully made whole and glorified where no longer is our thoughts leading strange places or rebellious places? Now our only thought is towards God and for God and delighting in Him and seeing Him and savoring Him and really worshiping Him. That's the future for the faithful. 
pleasure of being made whole. But we're homesick now. We're homesick in the way that Ulysses was homesick in Greek literature. We're homesick the way Frodo was homesick. We're homesick the way E.T. was homesick. We're homesick the way Paul was homesick. We're homesick the way my mom was homesick. We know what it's like to be homesick. And so the joy for us, the children of God, is those that are faithful, those called out, those who know the love and the affection of Almighty God. We know that one day we're going to be made whole. He's going to weave us back together. Do you know the interesting phrase from verse 2? You shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. I thought those moderns read that passage and say, Really? I'm going to be a stall-fed calf. Remember, this is written to an agrarian culture. They understand this kind of language of a farm. It's an illustration lost on many of our many of us moderns. The idea of a stall-fed calf is a spoiled calf. It's a cow receiving the best care possible. It's the 4-H calf who's getting petted and groomed, whose hooves are being trained, uh, worn off, and things like that. I mean, it's the pampered. And then the idea that these, these calves would burst forth out into the sunlight, be let go, be released. Some of our kids here, finally done school. It's kind of that sort of pent-up energy. They're ready to get out and about and bounce off the walls and things like that. That's that kind of vivacious energy that comes to the people of faith. There's a joy in being his child. The prosperity of growing up with a stall-fed calf. You'll notice in verse 3 that text goes on and it's good news for the godly. You shall trample the wicked. It will be his power because the verse says that he's the Lord of hosts. It will be his power. It will be his might. It will be his righteousness that will reign. But interestingly, we'll be a part of that adjudication. We, you shall trample the wicked. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. You ever walk on ashes? They're soft. It's easy walk on ashes. God is going to meet out such perfect judgment because we're going to leave that to him, not to us. Justice is mine, God's word says. I will repay. We'll, we'll leave that in his glorious hands, but he'll invite us in terms of ruling and reigning. It's an amazing perspective. The righteousness of God is so potent that though we are involved in part, it will be like ashes under the soles of our feet. There is coming a time when God is going to silence his critics and settle his accounts. Disturbing, distressing for some of us. For some of us who have unsaved family and loved ones, our hearts should cry out towards God, pleading for an open door, desirous that God would give us an opportunity to share the unsearchable riches of Christ with those. But we realize that there is coming a day of reckoning. There is coming a day of reckoning. And we cannot slide away from the impact of this kind of statement. Thirdly and finally, I put this heading over verses 4 through 6. Traveling instructions for the faithful. Traveling instructions.
instructions for the faithful. Verse 1 is bad news for the wicked, and 2 and 3 is good news for the faithful. And thirdly and finally, here are some traveling instructions for us as we leave this place and as we go about our workaday world tomorrow. Verse 4 says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Remember God's law. Remember the Ten Commandments. Remember the Decalogue. Remember the, the orderliness that God supplied to Israel and ultimately to us. Remember it. Do it. Adhere to it. Obey it. Recognize the truth and the validity that God has spoken and He has not stuttered. Apply it. Give diligent attention to it. There will be no divine lawbreakers. Idolaters, liars, cheaters, fornicators, adulterers, thieves, haters of parents who will enjoy eternity if God does not settle the account at the foot of the cross. God's law is not canceled by culture. In fact, it is the pathway of life. It is the pathway of blessing. It is the highway. His law is the expression of his will for his people. It is the highway towards him. This is the man that walks not in the castle of the ungodly and understands the way of sinners and sits in the seat of scornful. But his delight is in the what? It's in the law of the Lord. Dear brothers and sisters, we are prospered and blessed as we obey the law of the Lord. You say, that sounds so constricting. That sounds like constraint and I hate constraint. You realize you don't follow the pathway of the king, you're following the pathway of destruction. God makes no bones about that. If you're looking for clarity, how about this? We're either devoted to the Lord or we're devoted to judgment. Except before you life and death, choose life. Then there is this further instruction regarding the agenda of God in verse 5. Behold, I send you a life to the prophet for the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I turn and strike the earth with a curse. Here's the, here's the impact of the gospel. Hearts are bent towards one another. Essentially, we have, in a nutshell, the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord, your God, and all your hearts, all mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That essentially covers the Ten Commandments, and that's the that's the marching orders that the king gives to us to live by. That's the agenda that he gives to us. And, and we have this marker here where, where, where Elijah the prophet is going to come on the scene before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Of course, there's a certain element of confusion in this. There's a sense in which an Elijah-like one in John the Baptist begins the program of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's word, I think, in Revelation as well, lays out this idea that there's coming another Elijah. And before the great and terrible day of the Lord, there will be this other Elijah. It's significant, I think, that in the Seder Supper, that they set a empty space for Elijah to come. Before the final adjudication and judgment of God, Elijah is going to be on the scene. It's an amazing thought in terms of God's agenda. God has set it up. God has mapped it out. God has set it down and staked it in his word. And so it's amazing to think about those that believe and those that trust and those that are faithful to his word. Because 
us when we are. He gives us a heart for our children and our children a heart for us. He's at work in our hearts as we fear him and reverence him and honor him. It's been said that the program for the family is very beautifully laid out in Ephesians 5 and 6. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loves the church. Wives, submit, arrange yourself under the authority of your husbands. And it says, thirdly, children, obey your parents, that your days may be long on the earth. I'm fearful, brothers and sisters, that we have inverted number three in many respects and in many spheres. It has now become parents obey your children. Whatever they say, because they can lie and make your life miserable, you do it or else. And that's tragic because it's not in the program of God. The gospel changes our homes. It changes our relationships with others. Wrath is God's unrelenting antagonism to the very thing that mars us, the anti-godness of sin. It's a righteous response to our rebellion. Three closing parting thoughts in the shadow of Malachi chapter 4. His wrath explains the reason for the cross. If he is not angry over sin, certainly Jesus Christ, the Lamb, does not have to come and die. You, you see on the cross the violence and the viciousness as Christ is separated. He bears our sin. The cross makes no sense. The atoning sacrifice of the Lamb of God makes no sense. If this issue of sin and the righteous judgment of God has no bearing on our lives, without a holy God who is angry at sin, the cross becomes meaningless. It's superfluous. As dark as judgment is, the glory of God's grace lights up the night, and we journey with joy. Secondly, this, his wrath reminds us of the pressing need to speak the gospel. I hope that if you're a believer this morning that you leave this place desires of being a messenger and a herald of the Most High. I hope that you understand the necessity of speaking out the words of the gospel, the logos of the gospel. It is a message that we get to declare. Even, even atheists scorn those who say they believe the gospel but, re- but refuse to share it. Isn't that interesting? So you're telling me that, that, that I am in danger of eternity, and you won't tell me the message because you're afraid that it will offend me? You realize how illogical that becomes. Literally and finally, his wrath is ultimately a display of his glory. It is an echo of his glory. Everything that has ever been accomplished, every sin that has ever been accomplished in this world will one day be dealt with. God's record will not be tarnished. He will not make a mistake. Every sin gets dealt with. Either it gets dealt with because we are forgiven, or it's dealt with because he judges. But every sin is dealt with. The line between people is not merely ethnic or cultural or linguistic. It runs through the human heart. It runs through the human heart. What have you done with the work of Jesus Christ? I am a dying man. We're all dying. I'm speaking to dying people. I'm 
Monday, God's Word says that we'll stand before the Lord of all. And I don't want anyone to say, He never warned me. He was too afraid to tell the truth. He was too afraid to take me to the text and reveal what God revealed. He didn't care about my eternity. He only wanted to tell happy stories. He didn't tell me the whole truth. I didn't want to hear that. I used to love to play outside. And I can still remember some of these warm summer nights gathering lightning bugs and things like that around the, the block and around the different places where I lived. And I remember this one game that we used to play all the time, and it ended with this little phrase, ready or not, here I come. But the reality is, dear brothers and sisters, is that that's exactly what God in Malachi 4 says. Ready or not, here I come. And I pray and I hope that you're ready for the coming of the King. Father, thank you for your word to our hearts. Thank you for what you've done for us what you're doing in us. I pray, Lord God, that this word would not be lost. I pray, Lord God, that we would hear from you, the living Lord, and for those of us who are the faithful, for those of us who fear you and reverence you, for those of us who are the remnant, oh Lord, I pray that we might be busy about our Father's business. We're living in a dying world, Lord, with huge needs to move us, we ask. It was energy and strength and compassion and winsomeness that you have the greatest story ever told. Yes, this in Jesus' name.